You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. My name is Emma, and as the owner of the Ivy Bookshop, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you tonight to Writers, Writers Live with Mary Rizzo, uh, which will be a conversation about her new book, Come and Be Shocked, Baltimore Beyond John Waters and the Wire. Um, and she'll be in conversation with Wesley Wilson from The Pratt and Melvin Brown, uh, a longtime writer and educator uh, and Baltimorean, uh, both of whom can and will speak to the active activist cultural community of this city. Um, something that is in obvious conversation with the book that Mary has written, which of course takes us behind um, the sort of imaginative scenes of how artists' depictions of cities um, influence or inform the ways that people live in real physical, geographical, cultural, societal places. Um, as someone who's always been interested in cultural history, I think books like this are just incredibly important. And we at the Ivy are delighted to be in partnership with the Pratt in presenting it. Um, and as a part of that, I'll just say, uh, we at the Ivy are just endlessly appreciative of our partnership with the Pratt Library, which is one of the city's treasures. Um, we've long partnered with them in support of author events. And at the start of this COVID era, uh, Tracy and I got together and sort of said, how can we continue this? And I think it's one of the silver linings of our experience for the last six months has been what feels like uh, even a strengthening of our relationship with the Pratt in being creative and flexible and adaptable in figuring out how to support authors and how to support readers in this era. And that, of course, means virtual events like this. While we might love to have been in the gorgeous Pratt Library, uh, we're also really appreciative of being able to be here, uh, a part of these events in your living rooms across the city. And so, as ever, um, we are just so appreciative of the Pratt, especially in this era where, for those of you who don't know, the Ivy Bookshop um, will, in a couple of weeks, reopen our space, finally, um, in a new location at 5928 Falls Road. And so we look forward to getting to, again, welcome readers together in a physical space, uh, but also continue these virtual conversations into the future. And so on that note, I'm going to hand it back to Tracy, who's going to introduce the event and the uh, writer and the conversation partners themselves. Um, but again, we're just so delighted to have this whole audience here um, and I am excited to be in the audience for what promises to be a really fascinating conversation about our city um, and sort of how we tell the narratives of it. So thank you to everyone involved. And um, yeah, away we go. Yeah, thank you so much, Emma. I can't wait to check out the new store and I will be picking up my own copy of Come and Be Shocked from Bird in Hand. Um, when it arrives there shortly. I got the notification that it is, has left the warehouse, so I'm really excited. Um, so uh, as Emma said, I'm Tracy Diamond, the Adult Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Um, and before we officially start the program, I wanted to fill you in on some things happening at the Pratt. Um, we have sidewalk service at 14 of our libraries, even during this pandemic. So you can still access physical materials as well as mobile printing at these libraries. So uh, check that out at prattlibrary.org. You can find out more or call your branch. Um, we also have, in addition to tonight, a lot of exciting virtual events coming up like 
Karamo Brown of Queer Eye fame in conversation with Heidi Daniel on September 30th and John Meacham on October 6th. So like Emma said, we're just so thrilled we can continue to uh, host incredible cultural programming in partnership with the Ivy and come to you in your spaces. Um, and like I said, details about everything I've mentioned can be found on prattlibrary.org, which the new website launched recently and it's mobile friendly. So definitely check that out. And now it's even more accessible than ever. Uh, so tonight we are so thrilled to have Mary Rizzo speak about her new book, Come and Be Shocked, Baltimore Beyond John Waters and the Wire. And she'll have two special guests, Melvin Brown and Wesley Wilson. Uh, technical note, if you are in Zoom, post your questions in the chat and I will be monitoring. Um, and if you're in Facebook, post your questions in the comments. I'll be monitoring there as well and make sure that when we have the public Q&A, um, Mary has those questions. Um, in Come and Be Shocked, uh, just out from Johns Hopkins University Press, who we're also thrilled to work with often as well, uh, Mary Rizzo examines the cultural history and racial politics of these contrasting images of the city. She asks questions like, does the imaginary cities created by artists affect the real cities that we live in? And how does public policy shape the kinds of cultural representations that artists create? Uh, so to answer those questions, she explores the rise of tourism, urban branding, and citizen activism. She considers artists working in the margins from the East Baltimore Poets Writing in Chicory, a community magazine funded by the Office of Economic Opportunity to a young John Waters who shot his early low budget movies on the streets guerrilla style. Um, and for those of you that don't know, um, part of what makes tonight so special is that Chicory was run through the Enoch Pratt Free Library. So we're just really excited to have this event um, hosting Mary, Melvin, and Wesley together. And you can look at the digitized version of Chicory on Digital Maryland, which I will be popping all those links in the comments as we uh, continue with the event. Uh, so Mary Rizzo is an assistant professor of history at Rutgers University, Newark. She is the author of Class Acts, Young Men and the Rise of Lifestyle, and founder of the Chicory Revitalization Project. So we have been in a conversation with her for a while and this is like a whole bunch of things coming together. So after Mary gives a brief presentation, she will be joined by Melvin Brown and Wesley Wilson for a conversation. Melvin Brown was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. He attended Columbia University and is a graduate of the Johns Hopkins Writing Seminars. Wesley Wilson is the Chief of Central Library and the State Library Resource Center at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. So lots of Baltimore things coming together and I'm thrilled to have one of my colleagues here as well. So please give a warm virtual welcome to Mary Rizzo, Melvin Brown, and Wesley Wilson. All right, um, well, I'm going to share my screen. 
Uh, and while I am getting that going, uh, let me say that I am so honored and excited to be doing this event tonight. And, you know, it's um, a disappointment, of course, that, you know, we can't be in Baltimore and in the beautiful uh, Pratt Library. But um, there is a wonderful advantage of being on Zoom, which is that this event now is accessible to people outside of Baltimore as well. And um, some of those are people who have been in Baltimore and moved away. And, um, and that's really exciting uh, to me. Uh, too. So I'm just delighted to be here and, and really looking forward to the conversation uh, with Wesley and Melvin. Um, uh, so I have a few thanks that I have to say. So uh, first, thank you to Tracy and Wesley for uh, being amazing um, colleagues and, and co-conspirators and bringing this event together um, and uh, to Pratt Library for being a true treasure of the city. Um, and I have to thank everyone at Johns Hopkins University Press who helped bring this book into life. Um, Greg Britton, the director of the press, believed in this project from really day one before it was really even a, a coherent idea. Um, my editor, Laura DeVoulis, has been just amazing, uh, smart and communicative and sharp and uh, helpful at keeping me calm as uh, things got crazy over the past few months. Um, and then the marketing team, Catherine Margay and uh, John Moore, have just been fantastic in getting the word out about the book now that it is in, um, in press and in the real world. So thank you to all of them. Uh, in 2014, Mike Rowe, the host of the TV shows uh, Dirty Jobs and Somebody's Gotta Do It, got into a very public fight with writer and journalist David Simon, who is the creator of the TV show Homicide, which is about homicide police in Baltimore, and the creator of the show that is regularly referred to as the best show to ever have been on television, The Wire, which is a gritty drama about cops and drug dealers in Baltimore spread over dueling blog posts and newspaper articles, the essential conflict between these two men was over whether an artist has a responsibility to portray a city in a positive light or if they should reveal negative issues through their work. Rowe, who was born in Baltimore, argued that Simon's shows had damaged not only Baltimore's reputation, but its chance for economic growth. As he wrote in a blog post, Homicide in the Wire, quote, convinced millions of Americans that Baltimore is a fantastic place to buy drugs, find a whore, or get murdered. Better yet, all three at once. For Rowe, the role of the artist was to help raise attention around the positive things happening in a city. He wanted to see shows that highlighted regular people helping each other out and highlight the efforts of the city to sell Baltimore as a destination for tourists. Uh, now, Roe wasn't suggesting that we pretend that Baltimore doesn't have problems, but he really saw the media's role as prioritizing the positive rather than the negative. Now, David Simon, unsurprisingly, uh, saw the situation quite differently. He argued that his work, which chronicles those Baltimore residents whose lives and neighborhoods have been devastated by political policies, had both an artistic and a civic purpose, different than Roe's vision. Simon thought that his representations of Baltimore could, quote, help lead to redress and reconsideration of certain policies and priorities. For him, storytelling shouldn't simply, quote, affirm what those in power wish to have said about just how swell they've administered things. Artists must counter the official mouthpieces of politicians and promotional campaigns. They must supply, in Simon's words, some measure of dissent. What both men agreed on, however, is that the representation of a city and culture was important. 
that it could shape people's ideas of a place. It can encourage them to visit that place or avoid it, or it could expose the wrongdoings of elites and have a political purpose. In Come and Be Shocked, Baltimore Beyond John Waters in The Wire, I begin from this exact premise. The representations of a place that we see and consume in popular culture matter. They shape how we know a place. And I'm willing to bet that like right now, every person who's listening to this has an image in their head about a place they've never been to, right? And we could probably rattle off kind of some obvious ones. So we might think that Paris is romantic, you know, Tokyo is orderly, right? Um, and these ideas may seem really banal, but they actually have serious consequences and they have a history. Imagining what cities are like is more than just an intellectual exercise or an individual choice. These representations take material resources to make and have material effects on the place being represented. Uh, when in 2019, and again very recently, Donald Trump tweeted that Baltimore was a rat-infested mess, he was doing so to push his argument that Democrats can't run cities well, which is why Baltimore struggles. Now, missing from Trump's analysis is the systematic defunding of cities over decades, of course. And last year, when Trump tweeted that, Baltimore city leaders responded, but they also ignored this history. And instead, they pushed their own narrative that emphasized only the good in Baltimore through a website called We Are Baltimore that ironically now seems to be defunct. But missing from this debate is the question of who gets to make the representations that shape the meaning of the city. Now, in my book, I look at a number of artists who have created representations of Baltimore that have affected how the city has been seen since the 1950s. I look at uh, people like uh, author William Manchester um, and author uh, David Simon. I look at filmmakers like Barry Levinson and John Waters. Now, this slide probably uh, suggests very quickly to you that men have dominated image making around Baltimore, um, and that is certainly true. And there have been some women who have made very important representations of Baltimore that I look at. Um, two of the most important are the novelists Ann Tyler and Laura Lipman, both of whose works are very popular. But looking at this group, we still are confronted by the whiteness of this group of artists. And it may, you may ask, does it matter who makes these representations, right? If the representations are good, if they're good art, does it matter who makes them? And I would say, yes, that it does. Uh, and it does for at least two reasons. First, uh, because of Baltimore's persistent racial segregation, what Lawrence Brown calls the white L and the black butterfly, the experiences of people of color are different than that of white Baltimoreans. And while it's possible that a white Baltimore resident could describe the experience of, of living in black Baltimore in nuanced ways, it certainly seems like it would make a lot more sense to just have a black Baltimore artist do that instead. And of course, merely as a matter of equity, we would expect to see more black artists represented in a city that has had a majority African-American population for decades. Now, the second reason I think that the, this issue is important is that these representations have powerful effects, as I've already mentioned. Images that are sanctioned by the city or by capital have more ability to circulate and therefore to shape people's opinions of a place. And then those places get more resources as people visit them or movies and TV shows get filmed there. Equally important, the artists who are inside this system get paid and become famous, something that has been closed off to many Black creators. 
Now, the situation is changing. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates and Dee Watkins have both written uh, successful memoirs, wonderful memoirs as well, about growing up in Baltimore as Black men. But without the historical perspective that my book provides, their work could be seen as coming from nowhere. In reality, Black artists and cultural producers have been making art about Baltimore, but has rarely gotten the same level of attention and support as white artists. Finding these voices, especially in the past, can be very difficult, but it's vital work because otherwise we allow white and official voices to dominate the discourse around the city of Baltimore. So for the rest of my talk, I'd like to talk about one such resource that I found during my research. Chicory Magazine promoted the voices of young African-American people in Baltimore for nearly 20 years. But let me start with a story from Chicory that highlights, I think, its importance as a space of cultural representation. Uh, in 1966, a young black man, Horace Turk Hazelton, was harassed by two police officers on a Baltimore street. Turk was just a regular kid, 17 years old. He had grown up in East Baltimore, one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city, and had dropped out of his South Baltimore high school. Observant and quick-witted, he hung out in courtrooms in Johns Hopkins Hospital to see how the world worked. One night, after walking his girlfriend home, two police officers questioned why he was out so late on the street. And even though he explained, they escalated from questioning him to patting him down, checking for a weapon, despite the fact that he had done nothing wrong. When Turk jumped, startled by the officer touching him, the officer said to the other, that boy was going to hit me. And then the officer pulled out his gun, threatening Turk with it. When he put it away, Turk took off, running home through the dark city streets. So this story, the outlines of the story are certainly very familiar to us. We've heard a lot of stories like this about police overreach and misconduct against people of color since the death of Trayvon Martin, including, of course, the death of Freddie Gray while in police custody in Baltimore, and more recently, uh, the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Now today, our new civil rights movement uses social media and hashtags like Say Her Name or Black Lives Matter to raise the visibility of these incidents and to create a public sphere of activists and supporters talking about these issues. But in 1966, there was no Twitter, there was no internet. So how did Turk's story circulate? Well, it circulated through a mimeographed poetry magazine published by the Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore with funding from Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. Called Chicory, it was created by two librarians, Evelyn Levy and Thelma Bell, and a local poet, Sam Cornish, to be a space where people, mainly young people of color from Baltimore's poorest neighborhoods, could express themselves in writing and art. While we often think of poetry as high culture, art for art's sake, in Chicory, poetry was a vehicle for civic dialogue, a space for counter-narratives to the urban crisis, and a means of community empowerment. For Turk, it was a place where he could write about his experience with the police, which was published as Going Home in the first issue of Chicory in November 1966. The library published 10 issues of Chicory each year between 1966 and 1983. In 1969, the YMCA Press published a book of poems from the magazine as a book called Chicory, Young Voices from the Black Ghetto. Chicory changed with the times. Other editors took over, including poet and educator Melvin Brown, who we'll hear from later, who was the longest serving editor of Chicory, um, and Everett Adam Jackson, a poet and educator who edited the magazine in its final years. Even after it lost federal funding, uh, Pratt Library continued publishing Chicory and the work of the people 
from Baltimore's poorest neighborhoods with little to no editing. But after 1983, it was pretty much forgotten. Uh, the Chicory office, seen here in the 1970s, was emptied. And all of the issues of the magazine were packed up in boxes and stored in Pratt's Maryland room, which is where I found them in 2014. Coming out of the Black Arts Movement, which was a literary movement in the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s, Chicory believed that poetry was political. It was a method of consciousness raising and a way to proclaim Black identity. The magazine was also radically democratic, publishing work by anyone and everyone. Chicory's motto, which I think is just so brilliant, was that it was, quote, the magazine for people who don't like to like to write but have something to say. So using art and poetry, Chicory contributed to a civic dialogue on place, politics, and power. Before the internet, Chicory as a community produced magazine gave people the chance to tell others what they thought about what was happening in Baltimore. Now, I'm a historian, and historians like me are always looking for uh, resources that will give us some sense of what regular people in the past were thinking about and talking about. But it's really hard to find those. Official documents usually record the words of elite people and people in power, right, politicians and the wealthy. So how do we find out what the average person was thinking and doing in the past? Um, so there's a lot of ways that historians have figured out how to deal with this from oral history to using diaries and letters, for example. Um, but Chicory is really one extraordinary resource that lets us hear what people in Baltimore between the years 1966 and 1983 thought about the world they lived in. And what's really key here, what's really an important point, I think, about Chicory is its ideological and artistic vision. The words of the people were already poetry. So the editors didn't take on a traditional editorial role as gatekeeper or shaper of the work. Instead, the editors were more like evangelists or just listeners, right? They wanted to get people to submit their work, but they didn't um, really edit it very much. Now, it'd be incorrect to call Chicory unmediated completely, but the work published in the magazine offers insight into what people who are often marginalized in official historical narratives were thinking. So let me give you uh, an example, right? So I want to look at three pieces published in Chicory following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in April 1968 to suggest how Chicory worked as a counter-narrative. Um, now, Baltimore, like many cities across the U.S., had an uprising after MLK's assassination. For two weeks, the city was in an uproar. Uh, there was a lot of property damage. Six people were killed, and the National Guard was called in. And there's a wonderful book um, and public uh, humanities project called Baltimore 68, if you'd like to learn more about um, this moment in Baltimore's history. Um, so in order to understand how Chicory worked as a counter-narrative around the 68 riot, we first have to understand what the official narrative was, right? So at the time in 1968, political officials in Maryland saw the uprising as simply criminal lawlessness. Spiru Agnew, who was the governor of Maryland at the time, argued that radical black power activists had fomented the riot, that it was not the outcome of decades of segregation and political disenfranchisement, but was simply a criminal act, right? Now, Spiro Agnew would later step down from being vice president after being caught for tax evasion. So, you know, he knew something about, a crimi about criminal acts. Um, but his analysis of the riot as criminal and the government as simply protecting property and bringing law and order became part of the conservative wave of the 1970s that swept Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan into power. And of course, that Donald Trump is using right now for his reelection campaign. So this law and order viewpoint 
Um, this frame was one of the most important ways to understand these events in 1968. But Chicory writers offered a completely different perspective. Uh, a 12-year-old girl, Carol Calloway, published a poem called About the Riot in September 1969 in Chicory. Now, she framed the event through her perspective as a child in the language of a fairy tale. Quote, once upon a time, she wrote, there was a riot. It, quote, was started by a white person killing Martin Luther King Jr. And she described how she was, quote, in the house when the riot was going on and could see army and troop trucks driving up and down the street. For her, right, the troops were not bringing order, but fear. The National Guard told them that if they, quote, found anybody on the street after four o'clock, they would be locked up. They will take little children down the civic center. The National Guard here acts more like the evil witch in a fairy tale, snatching children away from their parents. And I think that child's perspective on the ride is a really unique insight that we very rarely see. It's also very different than a pair of poems that was published by J. Allen Jones in the June 1968 issue of Chicory, which are called The Morning Before and The Morning After. So Jones describes the literal morning before the riot, which according to the authorities, right, was a time of peace in Baltimore. But for Jones, he sees his neighbors struggling without work, without enough money to pay the bills and without enough to eat. And he writes, quote, you better believe there was mourning before, Lord, the morning. After the riot, there was property damage, quote, broken glass, smashed shelves, stuff like that. But that paled in importance in his telling to the positive effects, as people in his neighborhood suddenly had enough food now to last them for weeks, even if they had taken it from stores. This poem also indicates some tensions within these neighborhoods. Jones notes that one Jewish person had a heart attack and another a stroke because of the riot, but he downplays them. Now, stores in Baltimore's Black communities were often owned by Jewish shop owners, in part because those neighborhoods had been predominantly Jewish before the mid-20th century, thanks to racial and religious segregation. And while Black and Jewish people often saw each other as allies in the civil rights movement, there were also critiques of Jewish store owners profiting from the Black community in this period. So this poem offer, both refutes Agnew's official view of the riot and offers a window into these complicated racial and religious tensions. Um, the third piece that I want to look at is from the July 1968 issue. Two women published this short essay called A Message from the Ghetto. The intended audience shifts throughout the piece. It begins by addressing white Americans and the black middle class to, quote, inform you of the shameful conditions of American life. It then goes on to catalog the injustices like bad schools and unsafe housing before switching to addressing black people who must, quote, stand as one to overcome. So this piece really uses Chicory as a space of civic dialogue, telling black and white audiences of different classes what the authors think they need to understand about black life in inner city Baltimore. It ends with a call to action, spurring the black community to come together across class in racial solidarity. And we could analyze this piece in a lot more depth if we had the time, right? But I wanna point out a couple of things that I think are really interesting. First, it's written by two women, which to me underlines what historian Rhonda Williams has argued, which is that Black women were at the forefront of organizing in Baltimore, and particularly working class Black women. Um, and secondly, these women include their addresses at the bottom of the piece. Now, I think that's fascinating. Um, and I think there's at least two reasons why they did that, right? One, they probably wanted to prove their local credibility, right, to show that they were from the neighborhoods. So they had standing to comment on these issues, right? 
But secondly, and I find this like just like a really interesting to think about, by adding their addresses, it really opens up the possibility that the print public sphere of Chicory could become a real public sphere, right? So by having their addresses here, people could write them letters or could show up on their doorstep to talk to them about what they had written in, these, in this essay. I don't know if anybody ever did that, but certainly Chicory gives them that possibility, which I think is really fantastic and interesting. So as I've been suggesting here, Chicory became a really important place where writers of color could express ideas that countered what those in power said about Black Baltimore. But Chicory is important in a lot of other ways as well, right? And, and, and I do think it's important for me to say that it wasn't all politics, right? People wrote about everything that they were interested in, in their lives. So there's a lot of Chicory poems about love, about people having a crush on someone or about a relationship breaking up. Um, there are poems about memories of childhood or memories of different places in Baltimore. Sometimes, and these are some of my favorite poems, people just wrote about the things that gave them joy in their life, um, which is really beautiful to see and experience with them. But in any of these cases, Chicory gave young writers of color a place to experiment and publish their work. Now, some of these folks became regular contributors, like Annette Stockett, who uh, was in actually one of the earlier photos, um, and she was an artist. She drew many images for Chicory, and in one issue was described as the, quote, pride of the flag house courts. Um, and she, of course, did this beautiful cover illustration um, on the screen. Uh, Steve Cuff Cuffey published really amazing photographs in Chicory uh, and then later became a professional photographer. And here's an example of one of the photographs that he did for the cover of Chicory. Um, some writers who started out publishing in Chicory actually went on to careers in writing. Um, Terry Edmonds, who published in Chicory in the late 1970s, became the first Black presidential speechwriter for Bill Clinton. Uh, journalist and writer Rafael Alvarez published a poem in Chicory as a teenager in 1976. Um, and uh, Afa Michael Weaver, who is now an internationally renowned poet, published poems in Chicory in 1980 and 1981 while he was still a factory worker in Baltimore. So for these people, Chicory was a springboard to various kinds of careers. But even for those people who wrote just one poem for Chicory, the magazine served an important purpose. By publishing their words, it validated their ideas. Uh, now, recognizing the local and historical significance of Chicory, Pratt Library digitized the magazine, making it available through the Digital Maryland State Repository. So there you can now read every issue of the magazine. And today, the Chicory Revitalization Project that I work with, which is a group of former editors of Chicory, including Melvin Brown and Adam Jackson, a Pratt Library, two wonderful youth writing organizations in Baltimore, Writers in Baltimore School and Do More Baltimore, and a Bard High School Early College, and me work together to bring Chicory to life today, asking about how poetry can spur conversations about place and social justice. Um, so Tracy is leaving in the chat the, um, our Instagram account, so you can follow that if you're interested. We post poems from Chicory and contextualize them historically, um, and also the link to the digitized magazine, which I hope you take a look at. Now, you may be wondering what happened to Turk, who I started out this uh, talk with. He wrote a lot for Chicory in the first few issues, but then he just stopped. Um, in 1968, Sam Cornish, the first editor of Chicory, wrote a poem called Turk, which was published in the important Black arts movement literary anthology, Black Fire. And I believe this poem is about Turk from Baltimore. Now, other than Turk's own poems in Chicory and Cornish's poem in Black Fire, um, there's not a lot of information about Turk out there. 
I found a photo from the Baltimore Sun archives of a, a soldier who served in Vietnam with his name from the 1970s. And then from 2008, an obituary that is for a man who would be about the right age as Turk. But I've got no confirmation that either of those is actually about the Turk from Chicory and from Baltimore. Now, back in 1966, Turk told a reporter who was interviewing him about Chicory, quote, I got to write a book someday. I've got some ideas that won't wait. I don't think Turk ever published that book, but through Chicory, we can still hear his voice. Thank you very much. So, um, so I, I, now I think we're going to turn to our conversation with Wesley and Melvin. Um, so let me just get another sip of water. So, um, well, let me start with you, Melvin, if I can. Um, could you just tell us how you, how you found out about Chicory? How did you get the job? as um, editor of Chicory. And when did that happen? Well, it happened around um, 1970, 1971. I was at the time 21, 20. And uh, I began to write poetry when I was uh, around that age. I didn't start writing poetry early. I started writing poetry when I was 19 or so. And I was looking for a place to um, have my poems published. And somebody told me about Chicory. So I was introduced to Chicory as a contributor. When I, um, I found out about Chicory and I actually went to the offices and took some of my poetry. And at the time there was a gentleman there named Augustus Brathwaite. He was editing the magazine. And I met him, I brought my poems in, and we developed a rapport. And, uh, you know, he saw that I was earnest and serious about what I was doing. And, you know, looking back on it, he, he, was, a, um, he was a music student at uh, Peabody Conservatory. And he was working for the Pratt Library um, part-time, I believe. And I think Chiffrey sort of just fell in his lap because in my meetings with him, I realized that this was something that he really didn't have a passion for. I mean, he had a lot, of, he, had, he, had, he, had, he had file cabinets full of submissions of poems that um, he didn't know what to do with. He seemed pretty disorganized. And, and uh, he sort of let me hang around and I got the impression, I, I, I knew that if I, he sort of gave me the impression that if you, you hang around here, you could be the editor of this magazine because <laughs> this is really my thing. I just sort of, uh, I just sort of took it on because I don't know. I guess the powers that be at the library that, at that time, you know, he was a black man. He was creative. Uh, there were no more uh, uh, Sam Cornish wasn't around anymore. The the editors who were um, between uh, Sam Cornish and him, I don't know where they were. So he took it on and uh, that's how it happened. I just sort of hung around, I helped him get organized and um, 
And he sort of gave me the wink that, you know, um, I'm not going to be doing this this long. Somebody needs to pick this up. And so um, through him and the support of uh, Evelyn Levy and uh, Thelma Bell and um, uh, those ladies at that time, um, I became the editor. Okay. Um, and so folks can also ask questions in the chat. Um, so please, please do that. Um, so Melvin, let me, let me uh, ask one more question um, for you, to you, which is, so you were the longest serving editor of Chicory from about 1971 to about 1981, right? Um, so what was your hope for the magazine? What was your vision for Chicory when you were editing it? Well, my, my vision sort of evolved as I was editing it. As you are right that I was the editor of that magazine for a whole decade from the entire 70s. And I was a, um, I had become a student of the Black Arts Movement. Um, you know, I tell people, again, I, I became a poet and an editor at the same time. <laughs> So I was sort of feeling my way. I had no, I had to read about uh, what the previous editors had, had, had envisioned for Chickory to be. I had to, to, to arrive at my own uh, vision. And that was informed by my being a student of the Black Arts Movement. I was, um, I was uh, um, inspired and informed by the poets and the personalities of that movement. Um, Askia Muhammad Ture, Haki Matabudi, Leroy Jones, Imamu Baraka, uh, Lucille Clifton, um, Kalamu Yasalam, um, Etheridge Knight, um, Nikki Giovanni, Sonia Sanchez. These people were people I read and I was informed by those poets and personalities. I, I was also informed and influenced by the, 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 the publications and the anthologies mm -hmm. of that time. You know, so I was developing a sense of poetics in my own mind. I, um, the, the, the anthologies, the, the, the magazines that I read, uh, um, The Black Scholar and the Journal of Black Poetry, um, um, Black World, which is, which is mm -hmm which was at one time was Negro Digest. Just getting my ideas and my visions of, uh, you know, through these things, uh, the, the poets. And, and you, I think you mentioned in your presentation the um, anthology um, um, Black Fire, edited mm -hmm. by Larry Neal and Leroy Jones, um, who became Amir Baraka. I mean, that was like the Bible of my, I was on my desk. Um, and I, and that was, you know, that, that was such a great reference for me, along with the Black Poets by, uh, edited by um, Dudley Randall. Mm -hmm. So the literature, the personalities and poets, and also my own budding uh, activism uh, informed and influenced me. I became a... Um, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Walter Lively, who was a Baltimore activist during the early 70s, and he became a mentor of mine. And he, um, 
Uh, he was a, a, a very brilliant activist. And he developed something called the Baltimore Black Arts Museum on the east side of Baltimore. And uh, by the way, his press published my first book. Mm. He, um, and I, began, I, I, I came under his tutelage. I, I was involved in that uh, museum and I developed a, a, a writing workshop there, a writing collective called the Pomoja Writers Collective. And we did a lot of fascinating things. We, we had a, um, a relationship with prison writers. We had correspondence with them. We had a, a, a writer's contest. We had uh, workshops. Uh, we, had a, we did a lot of things that lasted a few years. But I, um, you know, my visibility as the editor of Chicory had allowed me to um, bring a lot of writers together, local African-American writers. Uh, I also was a member for, for a period of time in something called the Congress of African People, which was a cultural nationalist organization um, headed by uh, Maulana Karanga and Amiri Baraka, the, the organization that uh, primarily, one, one of the primary organizations for the popularization of uh, Kwanzaa and uh, Maulana Karanga's uh, the seven principles and the, the, the philosophy of Kawaida. So I was a part of that. So, you know, what I'm saying is that my, my involvement in the, in the literary, literary community, the African-American literary community, my activism, all helped to inform how I envisioned the magazine. Now, uh, what I wanted to, what I, but I realized, though, that it was important that Chicory be an outlet for the written and, and verbal expression of people who didn't necessarily write but had something to say. That was an important component of it. I wanted to have, um, and so, so in, in any issue, you might see um, something very elementary written by um, uh, you know, a young person alongside a, a very well-crafted poem on the other page, because I wanted to have space for uh, these um, unpolished voices, as well as be a vehicle for uh, writers who were actually developing themselves as poets and wanted to, uh, you know, who, who were serious poets, who were serious about, serious about writing their poems. Mm. So, those were the things, the, 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 the um, providing an outlet for non-writers who, who just wanted to express themselves and being a, a platform, a vehicle before, for, for, um, for, for actual poets who, who, who were actually, you know, given readings and being published and whatnot. And, and it's, it's truly one of the most fascinating things about Chicory is flipping through it and seeing that diversity of voices. Yeah. It's really, it's, 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 it is remarkable to see that. Um, yeah. So we let have me, a couple. Let me just uh, say one other thing. Yeah, go ahead, please. That um, in terms, you know, what I would do as the editor, now we had these community action centers throughout the uh, uh, city, uh, uh, many of them in housing projects that are no longer in existence anymore, Flag House, Lafayette places that have been imploded. But um, I would go to these uh, uh, community action library centers and conduct um, impromptu writing workshops with whoever were, were there. 
And uh, those were ways that I got submissions for specifically. And finally, I, it, as I was as I was looking through my files, I actually oh, oh one thing I wanted to say is that during my time I really expanded the mailing list and the subscription list to Chipper because I wanted it to go out to institutions, et cetera, and people that, um, you know, I wanted to go out to a lot of people. But I actually, looking through my files, I realized that at one point I created a, um, a rejection slip. So, you know, I, I had, as a, as a poet, I had gotten uh, uh, enough of them, so I knew how to write it. You know, we, we appreciate your submission, blah, blah, blah. We don't need it at this time. We, Please get back. So, I mean, because I had, because um, I was getting submissions in from the mail, mm -hmm. the mail, as opposed, as uh, along with um, uh, just getting uh, writings from, from the activities that I was involved in. So, uh, it's a really bigger picture than, uh, yeah. No, that's it. Before you go, I want to say to everybody, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've got my copy, oh, and uh, I want to thank you uh, for rescuing Chippery from the <laughs> dusty tombs of the uh, Pratt stack <laughs> and giving it uh, new life and, and a renewed interest. I really appreciate that. Well, I mean, that that means a lot to me, Melvin. And Ed, you know, I mean, uh, it's been wonderful getting to know you and working with you to, to bring Chicory back to life. And, and and I have to say, I mean, Wesley, you've just been a huge supporter um, ever since. So I went to Pratt in 2014 to look at Chicory in the Maryland room. And, you know, kind of soon, I feel like it was soon after that. It might have been like a year or so later. You know, I got back, I got in touch with, with you and other folks at the Pratt to talk about um, whether there was some way to digitize this and make this uh, magazine live again. Um, and, you know, you were so immediately supportive. So, um, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Like, how do you see Chicory um, how, fitting into what the library, the library's own history and how it's tried to work with communities and connect with communities and how it fits into what the library is doing today? It's so fascinating to look back at Chicory as a lifelong Baltimorean and realizing that the library's roots are those that really strive to really provide educational resources and support. But it was at this time in the 60s when Baltimore, like so many urban cities, was really anxious for change, really anxious for modernization having in the late 50s gone through a, a very serious housing planning mm -hmm. process, which actually did not yield what people had hoped at the time. Um, so clearly there were communities that were not heard from, mm -hmm. communities that were not part of that civic dialogue. And what Chicory was able to do really in this watershed, I think for library service in general, was to really create a voice. Uh, and, and you mentioned earlier, uh, you mentioned women, Thelma Bell and Evelyn Levy were instrumental in really bringing this publication to life and creating a publication with Sam Cordish, with other editors and with Melvin that really gave everyone who was involved a voice. 
It allowed people to really be free to express themselves, to talk about their inner desires, but also to represent the way libraries can empower not only individuals, but empower communities. And that's one of the strengths that I see with bringing chicory back uh, to life as you are doing is so important. We're in an age where communication is extremely rapid, yet through that rapidity, so much gets lost. Uh, there is no organizer. There is no one who pulls this information together. And in the case of Chicory, here is a publication that not only presented the voice of the community, the unheard voice of the community that was so crucial to Baltimore moving ahead and becoming, moving, striving to be a more connected city, which it still strives to be. Um, that is something that is not always easily done in our digital environment. So here is a way to, as we look forward, to bring those voices forward, to bring those thoughts, to bring those concerns, and to bring the personality that is so needed and oftentimes so missing and recognized in a digital age where communication is taking a different form. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, and one of the things that, that I think is really interesting, too, because I've gone through a lot of the you know records around Chicory, including the library had its own newsletter. Um, so I've read through all of those in the 60s and 70s and, and um, uh, looking for anything about Chicory. And what it came really clear to me was that there were librarians at Pratt, uh, white librarians who were uh, deeply committed to breaking down what they saw as a, a real chasm between the library as this white institution and the neighborhoods of Baltimore, which were mostly not white. And so they really wanted to figure out how do they, um, how do they reach the neighborhoods? How do they make the library a place where, you know, a black kid in Baltimore might feel comfortable coming to? And I think that that's like still an issue that not only libraries, but museums, I mean, basically all of our cultural institutions are basically still dealing with today. So it was really striking to me how much the library wanted to make those um, connections and then how it seemed like uh, Chicory was like one of the vehicles that they were using to do that. Yes, it, it certainly was a time when outreach programs changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. It was not bringing people always into the library, it was being present in the community. Mm -hmm. It was being present at, present at community meetings, listening to community dialogue. And that has dramatically changed, I think, uh, the way libraries and the way we address city issues now, the way we provide programs to support the community. Mm -hmm. uh, we look at strategic planning processes, which the public is involved in. It's not the library saying, oh, we think this is what you want or need. It really is the community saying to the library, this is what we need. We want to be your partner. We want to help make this happen. And it's a, it's a strong collaboration between these two who really help services rise to meet the needs. And not to say it's not a struggle in a digital age where as we try to really address the digital divide. Now during this pandemic situation, we understand that 
we've just scratched the surface and there is so much more that we can do. And we look at that in so many ways by extending Wi-Fi, lending tablets and hotspots, yet there is still work that we are doing and still community involvement that becomes part of that. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, it's, um, it's just, it's so striking to me how creative the Pratt is still and was back then. And, you know, Pratt, as Melvin mentioned, was creating libraries in housing projects. Um, there's all this talk in the 60s of how they, they um, had a station wagon that they put like a screen on and they would project movies. They'd go around to the neighborhoods and project movies and all these really creative things. Um, we have a couple of questions from uh, the audience. So a couple of people were asking a little bit more about the distribution of Chicory. Um, so do either of you want to talk a little bit about how Chicory got circulated? How did people get copies of Chicory? Well, Chicory was, um, uh, as, as I said, I was, you know, I worked hard to develop, a, a, a expand the mailing list, but Chicory was distributed to all of the um, branch libraries, all of the, um, and, and as far as the city, you know, city agencies, branch libraries, the, com the community library centers, and then I had a mailing list of, uh, you know, quite extensive mailing list throughout the country to college libraries and to different um, um, the different literary people around the country. Um, I, I, I Looking through my files again, I saw um, where I used to, uh, Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee used to have a program in New York and I used to send their, their um, a copy to them uh, every, every, every issue. Chiri published about 700 copies uh, 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 um, each, each issue. And um, I want to say something about uh, um, just some local people that were very impactful and, and influential. Lucille Clifton, mm -hmm. Mary Carter Smith, mm -hmm. and Regina Collier. They were um, three um, writer poets who were very supportive who would refer people to me, um, uh, who, you know, people um, who were writing. It was a different time, you know, no social media, no way to instantly put your stuff somewhere where everybody could see it. Um, you know, this, this is a time when people scribble things down and sometimes just hit them under their bed until they would share them with a friend. And so, so Chickory was an outlet for for people to at least get some feedback on what they were thinking and feeling. And so um, uh, um, Lucille and, 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 and Mary Carter Smith and um, Eugenia Collier, they were like, like aunties to me. They were, they were very supportive and uh, uh, either through their contacts, Mary Carter Smith had it, um, you know, she was known as the Baltimore Griot and uh, Eugenia Collier, Taught at Coppin, I believe. I know Lucille taught at Coppin for a while. And anytime there were students who had something to say, that um, she would refer them to me. They would refer them to me. So that was good. We've got a couple of questions um, coming in from the audience, which is just fantastic. Uh, da -da -da -da, let me see. Um, what about? the Afro-American. So someone asks about the Afro-American newspaper, which uh, Baltimore institution, um, 
and uh, you know, they they ask any comments about the Afro American and its place in shaping Baltimore. Um, so, you know, the Afro-American obviously had a huge um, role in, in the city and certainly in um, civil rights politics, the Afro-American is absolutely critical. Um, but there actually is also a, an Afro-American and Chicory uh, connection, right? Because Melvin, right, didn't you um, edit a supplement for the Afro yeah, that yeah. you also included Chicory stuff? Maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, well, that, that, that was the... Um... Uh, that was also in the 70s. It, you know, I, I wasn't aware until in recent years that the Afro had called Chippery the most authentic microphone of Black folks talking ever, ever devised. Um, and, you know, that was the furthest, that was far from my mind as a young person, young poet editing Chippery. Um, but yeah, I did. As I as I was editing Chippery, I saw also um, at the time the, the Afro-American had an insert in their paper called Dawn Magazine, and um, they uh, had a poetry page in that magazine. I, I reached out to them um, for a year or two. I was the editor of that as well. So there was a, a connection between um, Chicory and uh, the Afro-American newspaper. Um, and, the, and the Afro actually published poetry pretty regularly too, even within the pages of the newspaper itself, which I think is interesting. And in fact, I think they like some of the people who published in Chicory also published in the Afro's poetry uh, submission. So I think that's kind of neat too. It's really like there's a real local thing that goes on there. Yeah. Um, so we've got a couple of people who, uh, oh, well, one person, Judy says, I think it'd be cool to look at some of those submissions from the 60s and 70s and wrap them. 100%. I think, Judy, that's an awesome idea. And, uh, you know, we've been working with these amazing students uh, from with writers in Baltimore schools and do more Baltimore. Um, so maybe, maybe they could do that. That would be fantastic. And I know uh, Pratt has this amazing new, uh, you know, media in their, their teen wing. So it seems to me like the possibilities are, are really ripe for that. Absolutely. Um, go ahead, bro. Well, Melvin, sorry. That's why I think that, uh, Chicory is so important and relevant today because I think in many ways um, the, 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 the poetry, the music, you know, poetry is the music of language. And so I think in many ways, the poetry of Chicory and publications of that time were uh, progenitors of hip hop and rap today. So I think uh, it, that is just a continuation of a kind of oral um, expression. And so, yeah, to, to, to many of those works uh, lend themselves to being rap as, 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 as well as anything that's being done today. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah, take a look at those old issues. Um, so we have a couple of people who are asking about um, uh, John Waters, whose early films, I mean, actually uh, quite a number of his films coincided with the same period as Chicory. And so, uh, but, but seemingly a very different kind of view of Baltimore. So I think this is a question for, for either of you. Um, you know, do you see, um, was that sort of John Waters Baltimore completely separate from the Chicory Baltimore? Um, or were there ways in which, you know, those worlds kind of came together? 
Well, I'll pass this on to <laughs> Wesley. I, uh, uh, I don't know anything. Uh, well, I, I do know a lot about John Waters, but I, I, I don't know any similarities between Chicory and, and, and what I did other than uh, we both love the old Hippodrome, I'm sure that, uh, that, that that's, that's a similarity. I, I was, uh, I loved going to the old Hippodrome back in the day and, I'm, and he has an appreciation for that, I know. I think that's a very interesting concept looking at whether or not two communities, because John Waters was um, really looking at a different way of filmmaking as Chicory was really both of, of these were giving a voice to what was at that point not a recognized or heard community. So in that way, I think there could very well be a similarity. It would be very interesting to step back and at that point, ask John Waters at that time, are you aware of Chicory? Mm -hmm. And then seeing the creative flow that could have come from both of those, those movements at the time. Yeah. Right, I, and, and if anybody knows John Waters and wants to ask him if uh, he knows about Chicory, that'd be awesome. Um, but uh, Linda uh, Shopes adds to that question, uh, you know, are we really talking about were there white people that were involved in Chicory beyond the Pratt librarians, and, and that's a really good question. I mean, I, I think that really Chicory was, and you know, obviously both of you can can you know correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, Chicory really was deeply rooted in Baltimore's neighborhoods um, and within the Black community, particularly. Um, and even when it circulated beyond Baltimore, which it did, um, it I think still was mainly circulating within the kind of black arts movement community. But there were definitely um, white folks who were interested in chicory. But one of the things I talk about in my book is I think that they were mostly interested in it from the perspective of, of kind of, a, of being a liberals who wanted to um, sort of see what was going on in the black community as a way to sort of figure out like what liberals could do to help the black community. So they weren't necessarily participating in chicory as much as like sort of using it to look and understand the black community. Um, so I really do think that it was a, a black space, a really a black cultural space more or less. Oh. Oh, it definitely was. I mean, um, you know, I, I got submissions, you know, I edited Chickory for 10 years, 10 times a year, 100 issues. So I, I, I was a long serving editor of Chickory. So um, during the decade that I edited Chickory, 95% of the, the, uh, the contributors to the magazine were African-American. But um, I, I would occasionally get submissions from um, non-African-Americans and then there, there, were, there were, you know, you, you can find many of them in it. But the, 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 um, the activism that I was involved in, along with the workshops that I, I initiated with young people and teenagers and little kids, um, they were in communities that were, you know, housing projects, Pennsylvania Avenue, and Biddle Street, and, uh, you know, places that were predominantly African-American. So, 
so so Chicory's contributors were, you know, 90, 95% African Americans, but there were some um, um, you know, non-African American contributors as well. Because as I said, we used to, um, at, at, a, at one point, you know, things were just coming in in the mail. And uh, it was important to me to, 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 um, to publish the best poetry that I could, as well as give opportunity to novice to have space in there. So I, I you know, I was trying to balance between being an opportunity for people to see their stuff in print and at the same time um, be a literary magazine. Um, Sam Cornish, the founder of Chicory, uh, famously said, uh, this work will not be literature. That's where I depart from it. My editorship of Chicory, um, you publish good literature, I believe. One of the things that um, uh, that Sam did when he started Chicory that I found super fascinating and still do is um, if you look through the issues, you'll see that there are some very short pieces that are labeled street chatter. And my understanding is that um, Sam and um, there were a couple of other people who sort of like uh, helped out with the editing that they would um, overhear conversations on the street and then would like jot them down as these little poems. And some of the, I mean, truly some of them are just amazing, like just brilliant little pieces of poetry. Um, but they were really just like the words of people that they overheard. So, you know, that goes to what you're saying about like the sort of vision of Chicory as a, as a like not necessarily like a literary magazine, so to speak, but it's really like trying to get people to be writers, but, um, um, but something that is just kind of expressing the people. Um, so let me see, we've got, oh, we've got a question um, from Joanne about uh, The Wire. Um, so what is, so I'd be curious for both of you, what is your view of The Wire as, as Baltimoreans who are deeply connected to the city? What do you think of The Wire? If you have an opinion about it. Well, <laughs> um, I slept on the wire for a long time. I, um, uh, I guess my um, black nationalist sensibilities uh, kept me from appreciating uh, um, you see, <laughs> I embraced the, the, the tenets of the Black Arts Movement. So I, I was about um, uh, um, um, Black institutions, um, uh, embracing Africa. Um, what, what were some of the other tenets? Um, uh, 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 I don't know. I, I had mixed feelings. To sum it up, I had mixed feelings about the wire. I, 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 um, the fact, yeah, I had mixed feelings. Let me just leave it at that because I can't really. That that question caught me by surprise. So, so Wesley, do you want to do you want to jump in? What are what are your thoughts about the wire? 
<laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm going to admit that like Melvin, it was not on my radar for a very long period of time. Uh, I've always felt uh, that Baltimore is never recognized for what Baltimore is. Uh, it's not recognized often enough for its culture, for the depth of the cultural institutions and the citizens who live here. It, to me, when I finally started to watch it, was a sensationalist seller uh, that appealed to uh, those who liked a specific type of genre. But in many ways, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll go on record, in all ways, it did not feel to me to speak to what Baltimore was and what Baltimore truly is. And it is an amazing city with amazing creativity and culture, which is lost if you look at it through the lens of crime. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's interesting too, because I mean, I think I, that- I just want to say real oh, quick. Oh yeah, jump in, go ahead, Melvin. I don't want to punk out because that Baltimore that the wire depicted exists. And uh, in many ways it still does. Mm -hmm. So I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. I do think it's interesting though, because one could argue that Baltimore's um, most impactful uh, representers are David Simon and John Waters, right? Um, and they're talking about very different sort of visions of Baltimore in a lot of ways, but they're both seen as almost being documentaries. You know, people think of John Waters' movies as if he, he was, these are just like the real people of Baltimore rather than seeing them as fictionalized. And I think people think of David Simon the same way. They think like, oh, this is just like a documentary about Baltimore rather than recognizing that it is fictionalized. Um, and obviously based on his research and his own experiences and all of that. But there's something interesting to me about that, that like the way that these depictions um, become seen as like just the truth about this place, you know? Um, okay, we have a couple of, of, of more questions. Um, so someone asked how I actually found Chicory in the first place. So it's really, it's really like a boring um, historian story. I, I, was, I was reading a book um, that I'm looking, I can almost see it on my shelf, but not, uh, oh yes, it's actually called Baltimore, A Living Renaissance. It was published in the 1980s by the city, I believe. And so as I was reading, it's a, just basically like um, chapters about all of the sort of stuff that was going on in Baltimore as it was selling itself as a Renaissance city. And under like this sort of section on, on literature, they mentioned very offhandedly, maybe in like two sentences, this magazine called Chicory, which was published by Pratt Library. And I thought, that sounds interesting, you know, because I, again, as I said, as I was doing this research for this book, I was really committed to trying to find stuff that was um, uh, under the radar in terms of cultural representation. So I thought, well, this magazine sounds like it could be interesting. If it was published by the library, I'm going to guess that the library has it still, because libraries are good at that, collecting things and archiving them for the future. So um, I was like, well, the next time I'm in Baltimore doing research, I'm going to make a trip to Pratt. And so that's what I did. And I, I am not exaggerating. I, you know, emailed them ahead. 
I said, I'm going to be there on this day or whatever. I sit down in the Maryland room of Pratt Library and I have no idea what to expect. Um, then a librarian wheels out like two full carts of boxes and they're just full of these issues of chicory. I had no idea that there were so many of them. And so I just pick up the first one and start flipping through it. And that's when I see this poem by Turk about um, his, inter his encounter with the police. And this would have been 2014. So I was just like, this is amazing. This is exactly what's happening today. Um, except this was in 1966 and it's in the voice of this person who um, we rarely hear from. So uh, that was the moment where I was like, oh, there's something really important here about this magazine. Um, Let me mention, um, yeah. because we've tried to talk so much about the, the contents of the magazine. The uh, some of the artwork and the covers were just really amazing. Yeah. Um, the photography and the artwork, um, as I look back, um, you know, I, I selected those things, but I was more concentrating on the um, the, po the poetry and the um, commentary. And uh, but as I look back, I, I really realized how, how, how brilliant they were. The, the artwork is absolutely phenomenal. It's really beautiful. Um, so I, I know we're we're getting uh, we're getting close to the end of our time. Um, so we have a, a really uh, great question uh, from uh, Mark, who asks to summarize. Basically, asks what the um, what is Chicory's effect or legacy on Baltimore, um, and that's obviously like a, a, a could be a really big question. Um, so what do you guys think? What, what is Chicory's effect or legacy for Baltimore? I just think that it, um, you know, it speaks to the same issues that we're dealing with today. I mean, it deals with, you know, 50 years ago, Chicory, divorces in Chicory, we're talking about um, um, wealth inequity, racism, police violence and mass incarceration, mm -hmm. disenfranchisement and all those things that we're still talking about. And so what does that say? I don't know. It's, it's pretty clear what it says. Yeah. You know, not, not a whole lot has changed. Some things have changed and some things have remained the same. Absolutely. I abs absolutely agree. Uh, it mm -hmm. was, it still is really the voice of the community. It is the voice of, at that point, those who were not being heard. And it needs to be the benchmark that we look at moving forward to make the significant changes that are so desperate uh, in our society as a whole. Uh, particularly at this difficult time when it's so clear to so many more that change is important. Chicory really reinforces the fact that change did not really take place and now it must. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I, I think, you know, and I, I would say, I would agree with um, both of what uh, Wesley and Melvin said, and, and I'd say uh, two things in addition. So one, you know, I think there's like, uh, there's a very literal effect and legacy for the people who wrote for it. Um, and if anybody out there listening wrote for Chicory or knows somebody who wrote for Chicory, I would love, love, love to get in touch with them. Um, because I, I do really want to understand what it meant to someone to write for Chicory. Um, so I, I think that there was an effect for those people who published it. And again, we're talking 10 issues a year over the course of 17 years, you know, there's a lot of people and each issue was about, I don't know, 12 pages long. So, you know, there are a lot of people who were touched by this. And so I think that there was a very literal effect on those people themselves. But the yeah. other thing that I would say, um, just real quick, is that, and it kind of builds on, on, on your point, Wesley, about the sort of um, what hasn't happened, right? What, what have we not done that we need to do? Um, the other piece of it is about the how our society devalues the arts now so that you know chicory was uh created with federal funding through the war on poverty uh, and there was a really interesting way of thinking about how a magazine like chicory was part of the war on poverty that you know i think it's really fascinating that they made that connection right so it's like we can take this money to uh, eliminate poverty and part of what that means is creating the space for this literary magazine then that was coming out of the federal government and that is literally inconceivable today right so it, it to me it's also a really sad commentary on where we are right now in terms of our support for the arts you know one of the things i talk about in the book too is the the role of the arts in a city like baltimore and, and there is i think a problem where the arts over the last 20 30 years maybe longer you know 40 years have become um seen as a way to encourage upwardly mobile people to move to a city, right? So it's, it's a force for gentrification. So we're going to use the arts to sell the city so that we can get wealthier people here. Um, but what's lost there is the role of the arts in the civic way, and it's the civic role of the arts. And I think, you know, the support for the arts that Chicory had and represented is something that we really need to fight for um, and bring back that kind of civic role for the arts. Absolutely. Oh, so we've got, let's see, someone wants to know the size of chicory. So it's about, it was eight and a half by 11. It was um, eight, eight and a half by 11, about uh, maybe 20, 25 pages in each issue, something like that. Yeah, exactly. And it was all mimeographed. So it's, it was great to see the real, like the actual issues, because you can like see that mimeograph um, quality of it, which is really cool, stapled the whole thing. Um Oh, and so uh, Leanne asks whether oral history interviews with Chicory contributors, editors, readers, artists would be amazing. Any chance of a project like this in the works? Um, so I've been uh, doing some interviews. I've done an interview with Melvin. I did an interview with Sam Cornish before he passed away. Um, interview with Adam Jackson, who's the last editor of Chicory. I actually just recently interviewed this summer Afa Weaver, who wrote for Chicory or wrote in Chicory before becoming this very famous poet. Um, so I, I agree, I think it would be really great. And, and again, it'd be fantastic to widen the circle of the people who um, were connected to Chicory in some way to um, get those oral histories collected. And what, I, what would be um, 
so what then the next step after that is how to make those accessible, right? So through the Digital Maryland repository, all the issues are there. Um, and so one of the things that, you know, we have to think about in sort of the bigger picture or in the future is how do we add to the um, digitized magazine to flesh out all of this great um, stuff that, that we can add to it to talk about this history. So I think that we are just about ready to um, to wrap up. And I think uh, Melvin is going to uh, kind of wrap things up with a poem. Is that Yeah, correct? yeah. I, I, I didn't know. Yeah, I have a poem that uh, you um, featured in your, uh, I, we were on the same wavelength. So oh. I picked this poem. Um, uh, the audience has seen it, but I'll read it anyhow. Please. Um, it's called Turf. And I think that it's a piece that um, has significance given what's going on in the country today. Um, it's called Turf. Going home, she had me a thing with a cop after walking my girl home. They picked me on the street. Where you going this hour in the night? Been walking my girl home. Where she live? A long way from here. What bus you take? Why are you asking me these questions? Then he jumps from his car. You getting smart with me, son? No, sir. I could smell his toughness. Son, where you been? My girl. You better stop lying. He looks at the other cop. This boy thinks he's smart or something. Then he starts to feel my behind, and I jump as I always do when somebody feels my behind. Oh, shit, he says when I jump. Did you see that? That boy was going to hit me. Then he hit me. Run, he said. So I saw how it was going to be now for me that night. Boy, if you run, I'm going to blow your head off. Run, he said. He kicked me. He pushed me with his gun. Then he saw I was not going to run. He put his gun away. And then I run. Me running, smelling the street, bumping into dark gates. That was uh, by Turk and uh, published in Chippewa in 1966, the first year of Chippewa's existence. It was over 50 years ago. Well, thank you so much, Melvin and Wesley, uh, for this wonderful conversation and for being just amazing um, partners on this project that uh, we are working on. And uh, in the comments, in the chat, people are talking about could the magazine be reprinted and redistributed it, could baltimore city schools use back issues of it yes let's with let's try to make that happen um and I, i'm so excited to see how excited people are about it and and thank you again wesley and melvin for uh being for this conversation and for being so wonderful to work with thank you thank you mary for bringing chicory back to life thank you so much mary we appreciate it everybody yeah. There it is. <laughs> yes, you've got your copy. This I'm conversation copy. has just been so amazing. So thank you again, Wesley, Melvin, and Mary. And yeah, that's, I think we want to see it revitalized. So I know we're being recorded, so it's on record. So we're going to have to get to work. Um, and thank you all for joining in and being so enthusiastic in the comments and the chat. It really feels like 
were together discussing the book. So you can either check it out from the Pratt Library or get your copy from the Ivy Bookshop. You'll be supporting um, either a local business or a local publisher either way. Um, so again, thank you everyone and have a wonderful rest of your evening. Thank you. Thanks everybody. Thanks, Wesley. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.